All right, Acts chapter 28. So as you know, we've been been in Acts for a little while. And this Sunday, and God willing, the next, may be our last couple of Sundays together in the book of Acts. Today we're looking at Acts 28, verse 1 through 16. Let's pray first. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, please address us this morning as we read As we read these scriptures, Lord, that are breathed out by you, God. As we understand the plain sense of them, Lord. As we understand what you want us to do and how you want us to respond. God, I pray that you would help us to do just that. To respond with worship because of your faithfulness. To respond with obedience because of what you call us to do, God. Help us to respond with hearts full of faith in you. Lord, we love your word, and so we gather together around it this morning. Speak to us, Lord, please. Come and be with us now, and exalt yourself. We love you, Lord, and we praise you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so in this passage today, a promise is finally fulfilled. Paul is finally going to make it to Rome. If you remember, this has been sort of an expectation and a build-up. Really, since Acts 19, there's been this build-up and this expectation that Paul is going to make it to Rome. And today, we're actually going to see him make it there. This incredible city uh, that was capital of the Roman Empire for near a thousand years, a focal point of civilization, for almost a millennia, so, and Paul is going to make it here. Now, here's what's not hard for us to grasp. As we get ready to read this, this is what is not hard for us to grasp. God gives a promise. He gives a promise, as he does to Paul about getting to Rome. And then God fulfills that promise. That's not hard for us to grasp. We understand that. God speaks words, and he does exactly what he speaks. He keeps his promises. He's a faithful God. It's not hard for us to understand and grasp that. What I believe is hard for us to grasp at times is the path that God uh, makes to fulfill those promises that he has. So so he gives a promise. We understand the beginning. He fulfills the promise. We understand the end. It's the stuff in between that that we have problems grasping the ways and the paths that God uh, allows to take place for his promises to be fulfilled. And so that in-between time, we understand the beginning and the end, but that in-between time is what makes people write hymns like God moves in mysterious ways. Okay, and so and so I want us to think about those things as we get ready to read this passage of scripture. So let's begin just the plain sense of what's here. What do we have in our passage in verses one through sixteen today? So let's start off reading in verse one. We're going to read chapter 28, verse 1 through 6. These, And what we're going to see here is the friendly Maltese natives. 
Verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they waited, when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Interesting stuff. So there's been this long journey from, from Jerusalem to Rome. This, we've been seeing this long journey to Rome. Now, he hasn't, and what we just read, Paul has not made it to Rome uh, just yet, but there's been this long journey. The promise was given in Jerusalem. Uh, there's all these hardships that have come, two years in prison in Caesarea, and then a long, uh, hard uh, ship ride to, to try to get to Rome where they get lost in a storm. That's in chapter 27 where they're lost and, and, and storm-tossed, and, uh, and then they land here on this island. They land here on this island called Malta. So they reach, they finally reach land. And Malta is the place. It's an island that's just below Italy. You can actually go there and uh, visit there today if you would like to do that. But there's this island that they landed on called Malta. Now it says here, the native people showed us unusual kindness. So they didn't just show kindness. They showed unusual kindness. I mean, they would have thought, hey, it's kind. It would be kind if these people just wouldn't try to kill us right now. Okay? But they went above and beyond, beyond all expectations, showing these men kindness as their ship is broken up and wrecked and they swim on the shore. The, the native people show them unusual kindness. So try to imagine, try to imagine the scene here, okay? So they're on their ship. They've been storm tossed for, for, uh, for a long time here. They've lost hope. They got this promise that they're going to make it, if you remember that, in chapter 27. And all of a sudden, they see a beach. They see a beach ahead, and they're going to try to run this ship on this beach, which they don't know it yet, but it's, it's on this island called Malta. They're going to try to run the ship onto this beach. And then suddenly, before they get there, they strike a reef. And the boat bottoms out, and all of a sudden, the waves are tearing this thing up, and the ship is being destroyed. Their ship is absolutely destroyed, but they can see... The beach up ahead. And so they have to jump in and swim to shore. And verse 2 tells us it's cold. It is really cold out there. And they have to jump into this water. And not only that, but it says that it begins to rain. So, you know, they see the beach. Oh no, we strike a reef. Oh, we gotta jump in when it's freezing cold. And, and, and now it's starting to rain. Try to imagine that scene. And in waves, the people start you know, whoever can swim faster gets there first, and whoever's a little slower gets there next, and those folks that are floating on pieces of the ship because they can't swim get there after them. But people in waves are coming up onto the shore of Malta. And when they get there, they meet some people that they have trouble communicating with. 
This Greek word that describes them, that they're the native people, the idea of this word is that they couldn't understand them. They didn't speak the same language. And so they have some problems communicating with these people. And to their surprise, the natives are welcoming. The natives are kind to them. And it says that the natives even strike up a massive bonfire for them. Now why do you say a massive bonfire? Because there's 276 people that are on this ship that are washing up ashore, and they're making this, they're being kind and making this fire, striking up this fire to keep these men warm. So these people showed them unusual kindness. Now what's the Apostle Paul doing in all this situation? What's he doing? Remember, this is a man that's gained some clout, right? He, uh, you know, he gave them that sanctified, I told you so. Uh, in, in chapter 27, I told you we shouldn't have been out on the waters at this time. You know, he, uh, he, he told them, hey, have, have, everybody lost hope. He said, men, take heart. An angel appeared to me and said that we're going to make it and God has granted, oh, I've been praying for y'all and God has granted all of y'all to make it alive on this island. So, so Paul has gained some clout here. So what is he, what's he doing? What do we see him doing? And we see it here in verse three. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, here's this important man with some clout that doesn't think he's too important to gather up some sticks and throw it on the fire. So here he is. You try to imagine Paul doing this menial task. He's gathering up sticks. He's, he's helping out these natives that are helping them out. He's putting the sticks on the fire. And so there's, there's humble Paul. There's faithful Paul. His tribulations are finally over, right? He's made it through the shipwreck. Tribulations are finally over. Boom! Bitten by a viper. Great. Snake bitten. He says it right here if you look at verse 3 again. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now apparently this was a poisonous snake. These natives have seen people be bitten by this snake and drop dead after a few moments. So they're waiting. Is Paul about to drop dead? What's about to happen to him? He's been bitten by this viper. Now at this point, we get a little bit of an insight into these natives, um, into their worldview. We, we, we can understand a little, about, a little bit about these Maltese natives, about their worldview here. You say, what do you mean? Well, look at verse 4. What do we understand about their worldview? When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand... They said to one another, so imagine, this is constant. The, the, the conversation is going throughout the crowd. Everybody's gathered around the fire. And the conversation that's going throughout the crowd is this. And tell me what you understand about their worldview here. Listen. No doubt, this man that just got bit by the, he survived the sea, but got bit by the viper. This man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice, justice has not allowed him to live. That man must be a murderer. Now think about this worldview that these guys have, okay? What, what is in the Maltese natives right here? They have some sort of concept of morality, that there's right and wrong. Okay, this man is paying for what he did. He must have done something really wrong because he's paying for it. And they have a concept of justice. It's ultimate justice. You do something wrong, you, you get paid back for it. Now, there's good and bad in this. There, it is true that we should have a concept of morality 
and justice. And you see that in a good way in the Maltese natives, but you also see some negative things that it's, it's skewed, it's marred by their sin. They understand morality and justice, but they're missing something here. Okay? Now, where did this come from? And these native people, where did they get this concept that there's a right and there's a wrong? There's morality. Where did they get this concept that there's justice? It's like it's just, it's just hardwired into these men. Where did they, where did they get this from? And let me ask you another question. Why do we see humans all over the world with this concept of morality and justice? Why do we look in every people group on the planet and they don't have to be taught? It's like it's just hardwired into us that we understand good and bad, right and wrong, good and evil, and we understand justice, payment for those things. Where does it come from? I know that it's skewed. I know that the, the ideas are there, but they're marred and they need to be guided by the word. I realize that, but where does the concept itself come from? Why is it when we read stories to our children, we never have to teach them root for the good guy, root against the bad guy? They know bad guy, good guy. They know right, wrong. This guy needs to be paid for what he's done. This guy needs to be rewarded. They know that. Why don't we have to teach them that? Why does it seem like it's just hardwired into these natives and to everybody on the planet and to children before they're even taught? Why? If you have a naturalistic, evolutionary type worldview... This massive piece of evidence, when you look at the Maltese natives and you look at the world around you, this massive piece of evidence makes no sense. How is it that if we have just everything's just natural, everything's just evolutionary, this is where we came, this is how we came into this world, then, then where does this idea, this concept of morality, good, evil, justice, where does it come from? Monkeys don't have it. Animals don't have it. We don't see courts of, of law amongst the, the eight kingdoms, right? Where they're paying people back for their murder or whatever they did. We don't see any of that stuff. Why? Why is this in humanity? And the reason is because this is evidence that we were created by Creator God and we're created in His image. The reason is hardwired into all of us, including these natives, morality and justice. The reason it's there is because we're created by God in His image, and that God is a moral God and a just God. And so therefore, it's in us. It's just, it's just in these people. It's just in us. It's just in our children. Now, that being said, we realize, like I said, this Maltese uh, uh, worldview... It shows us they're created in the image of God, but also that that's not enough. Being created in the image of God, and yet that image of God in them is marred by sin. It's marred by sin. You say, why, why do you say that? Well, think about what we just read. These people just said that they're making wrong ideas. They have an idea of morality and justice, but, but it's twisted. It's messed up. They're thinking something like this. That man was bitten by a snake. That man's about to die. It must mean that he's being punished for his evil. You see, it's skewed. It's messed up. That man must be a murderer. So they, and think about how fickle that is. They went from, from just a few, a few moments, they went from that guy is a murderer, and then when he didn't drop dead, what'd they say? This dude's a God. And so this needs to be a reminder to us that people created in the image of God with this reality. Listen to Romans 1, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, Listen to it. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How? 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. It's plain, it's clearly perceived. The things about God is clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Look at what's been made. For example, where does morality come from? It's in every human all over the world. Where does justice come from? Where do these concepts come from? It's evidence that a moral and just God has created us in His image. But listen to me, that's not enough. People created in the image of God with an understanding of morality, an understanding of justice, they've got just enough knowledge of God to condemn them to hell forever. They need the special revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be saved. And we see that in these Maltese people that they understand morality and justice, but man, they're looking at Paul as a God right now. They need more than just general revelation. They need the special revelation of the gospel. Let's go to verse 7. So look at verse 7 with me. We're going to read verse 7 through 10. So they met the Maltese natives. Now they're going to meet a friendly Maltese leader. Verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when, he, when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So here we're introduced to a man on this island named Publius. And it calls him the chief man of the island. And this chief man, this chief leader, magistrate of the island, shows hospitality to 276 men for three days. It shows hospitality to them for three days. And now what we start hearing as we read, as we continue in this story, what we're reading and, and what we just read, what we heard, is that language of divine providence, right? Remember that, that just so happened this, and then just so happened this. And, and you hear that language of divine providence of God literally controlling all things. We start hearing that here. So, so what did we see? Just so happened, they land on this island, Malta, and just so happened, they're right next, they, they, they land very close to where the leader of the island, Publius, lives. And then, verse 8, it happened, just, just so happened, verse 8, it happened, that his father is sick with fever and dysentery. And, and there he is. Just so happened, here he is. He landed on the place where this man lives, and this guy's father is sick. And so Paul lays hands on this man and heals him. And that sparks something in the island where people are coming from all over the island, bringing their disease and being healed by Paul. Think about the, the domino effect that happened here, that it just so happened to land... Uh, on, on this guy's property, in a sense, uh, just so happened in God's providence that his father's sick, heals him, and it sparks something where people are coming from all over the island to be healed by Paul. Look at it in verse 9 again. I want you to feel the force of this. And when this had taken place, listen, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. This is sickness 
And this disease form of sickness being eradicated from an island. Listen, I believe that God still heals today and we should pray and ask God to heal people. But this is something different. This is something that is affirmation of Jesus, affirmation of the apostles as truly the Messiah and truly his apostles. This is something different. This is what, like what we read about in Luke 440, where it says Jesus, they're all coming to him, and it says Jesus laid his hands on every one of them. The whole town is gathered at the door, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. You understand, Jesus is shutting down hospitals in that city. Dr. Luke goes, I'm out of work. I got nothing. The one writing this, Dr. Luke, the physician, I've got nothing left to do. Nobody's sick. Same thing is happening in Acts chapter 5, verse 12 through 16. You remember that? Where they're in Jerusalem, and literally people are coming from outside of Jerusalem, having sick people on cots, parking them in some place where they think Peter's shadow, his shadow might go across them, and when his shadow's going across people, people are getting healed. I mean, this is, this is amazing stuff. And then here, same thing here in Malta. People are coming from all over the island, Everyone, the rest of the people with diseases come and they're healed. An island is being, a sickness is being eradicated on this island. The hospitals are shutting down. This is amazing stuff that happened. Now, why does this happen? Listen to this in Hebrews chapter 2. You don't have to flip there, but Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. Listen. How shall we escape if we neglect... So great a salvation. Talking about the gospel. Oh, how should we escape and neglect this great salvation? It was declared, that message, that gospel was declared at first by the Lord. That's Jesus. And it was attested to us by those who heard. That's those eyewitnesses, those apostles. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Why is God doing this in in, in Caesarea, uh, Capernaum with Jesus, in Jerusalem with the apostles, in Malta, right here with Paul? Why is He doing this? To affirm the message of the gospel. Yes, this really is the Messiah. Yes, these really are my apostles that carry the message of the gospel. And so then the question there, the question based off of that is, was the gospel preached on the island of Malta? Was the gospel preached on the island of Malta? Were, were, uh, were people converted? Was a church planted in Malta? And we're not, we're not told anything explicit here, but I would say it's highly, highly likely that the gospel was preached in Malta and its souls were saved. And I'll give you three reasons why. One, that's a new that's a New Testament pattern of the miraculous. The miraculous comes, affirms the message of the gospel. The gospel is heralded and souls are saved. I think the gospel was preached here by Paul. Number two, notice the treatment that they received. So verse 11 tells us, after three months we set sail. They're in that place for three months. They're on that island for three months. And look at verse 10. They also honored us greatly... They honored us with many honors, and when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. You see, when Paul would go somewhere and 
And, and miracles would come, and he'd preach the gospel. People that rejected the gospel hated Paul, and people that re- received the gospel loved Paul. And what we see after three months is these people haven't been chased away. These people are, are acting as if they are Christians now. They're, they're actually putting things on board the ship. They're actually honoring them with many honors. And then just to give a third reason, uh, extra, extra biblical history tells us that a church was planted here at this time and that, that Publius was its first leader, which is an interesting fact. Third section, verse 11. What we're going to see now is he's finally going to make it to Rome. So he's seen these friendly Maltese natives. He's seen the friendly leader there. And now he's about to have a friendly reception into Rome. Look at verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island. A ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse... We stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers, and, there, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Alright, so it says here they leave out from Malta. And the first place it says they land is Syracuse. It's in Sicily. It's a little bit closer. They're getting a little bit closer to Italy. Okay, And then it says they land in Regium. If you think of Italy, it's like a little boot. Remember that? Some geography class, a little boot. And Regium's right on the toe of the boot. So they land there. Then it says they land at Puteoli. I thought, man, that really sounds Italian, doesn't it? It's because it is. Puteoli. Uh, and, and this is a big moment, because when they land at Puteoli, this, now, now the sailing is over. Okay, no more. Now they're, they're headed to Rome, still moving towards Rome in Italy, but now it's by foot. Now the, 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 the ship rides, the sailing is done with. This is a big moment right here, okay? This is what we see in this passage. Now, we see the church showing up a few times in what we just read. We see the church showing up a few times. It says right here in verse 14, on this final stretch to Rome, in Puteoli, it says, we found brothers. Right there in Puteoli, they found brethren, they found brothers. They invited them to stay for a week, these inviting, welcoming brothers in Christ. We see the church showing up. Uh, also, as you keep reading verse 15, it says some of those brothers, they, they're in Rome and they heard about Paul and them coming. And so they actually trekked out from Rome, met them at, some of them met them at the Forum of Appius, which is about 40 miles out, just to meet Paul and turn back around and walk with him back. Some of them met him at three taverns about 30 miles out, just to meet him and turn around and walk back. So, so the church is showing up and escorting Paul into Rome here. And then we've got Paul's arrival in Rome. You see it in verse 14 and verse 16. Verse 14, just very simply, it says, and so, at the end of verse 14, and so we came to Rome. Verse 16, and when we came into Rome. So we see him finally show up in Rome. And then our passage today, here in verse 16, it ends telling us that this poor little soldier got chained to Paul. Poor guy. 
He's about to hear the gospel of Jesus. We see Paul there uh, is, is staying in Rome, and he's got a soldier there that's guarding him, uh, probably in the sense of, because he's a prisoner, making sure he doesn't get away. So this is the plain sense of verse 1 through 16, the plain sense of what we see here. So what's the main point? If I had to tell you, all right, what's, if I had to tell you the main point of this passage, and I do, that's what I'm supposed to do. What's the main point of this passage? I would tell you this. This is God is faithful to His promise. The main point is God is faithful to His promise. Now, it's been really, really sweet to watch this unfold, if you think about it. Um, we've seen, as we've watched this unfold, really from Acts 19 on, we've seen Paul's desire, his longing to get to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome. We saw that in Acts 19 uh, 21, I believe it is. Yeah, Acts 19, 21. He desires to get to Rome. He tells them on his way to Jerusalem. He's leaving Ephesus. He says, look, I need to go to Jerusalem and drop off this gift that's been collected from everybody. I need to drop off this gift. But after I drop off this gift, I must see Rome also. So he desires to go to Rome. He wants to go to Rome. Now, why did he want to see Rome? Well, we know why he wanted to see Rome. Because shortly after Acts 19, 21, he wrote this letter. And it's this letter that we call Romans. It's a letter written to the church at Rome. Now you go read that letter and you get to find out why he wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to go there to build up the church. Romans 1. I can't wait to see y'all. I can't wait to be there with y'all so I can impart to you some spiritual gift so I can be there for your edification and our mutual edification. I want to build up the church there. That's one reason. I thought about this, the... the um, a lot of people go to Rome because they, man, you imagine this place. I mean, people, people literally even today go there uh, ju- just to see the ruins of what it used to be. And you imagine Paul, the people that wanted to go there to see these massive buildings and beautiful structures and, and art and all the amazing things that are there. And Paul just wants to get there so he can see the church and build them up. I thought about God in Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2, where God says, all these things my hands have made. All these things exist, say the Lord. The Lord, Look at the heavens and earth. All those things exist. But on this one I look, he who is humble and contrite, who trembles at my word. God said, that's the one that's gotten my attention. And Paul's the same way. He's not, he's not there to see the Roman, the beautiful Roman structures or the people of the government. He's there to see the people of God and he wants to build them up. Now we also know from the, the letter to the Romans that he, that he wants to, he really doesn't want to be there too long. You read Romans 15, he's really just trying to get there so that they'll send him to Spain because they don't have the gospel in Spain. So you go read Romans 15, and he's trying to get to Rome because he wants to build up those believers, build up that church. But also, brothers, I want you guys to send me to Spain because I need to go preach the gospel where Jesus is not named. So he's about the mission of God. Now, these are good motivations, right? So Paul wants to get to Rome. We know that from Acts 19, 21. And we know from Romans that he has good motivations. These are good desires. The mission of God going forward, the church of Jesus being built up. And so his plan is I'm going to go to Jerusalem from Acts 19, 21. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to drop off the money. I'm going to hit the first ship to Rome. And then I'm headed to Spain. That's Paul's, that's Paul's plan. And of course, you know, he gets hung up in Jerusalem, beaten half to death. Arrested, and he's hung up there in Jerusalem and Caesarea for a time. Now, 
while he's in jail, that was his plan, but while he's in jail, not only does he have desires to get to Rome, but he has a pro- he gets a promise. It's in Acts 23. You can read it here in Acts 23, verse 11. He had a plan to get to Rome, then to Spain. His plan is interrupted. In verse 11, Jesus shows up in that jail cell and says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. He gets his promise from Jesus. Hey, just like you were in Jerusalem... And you were testifying to the facts about me. Take courage, Paul. You're going to do that in Rome. I'm taking you to Rome to do that. That desire you had to get there, I'm going to fulfill it. I'm giving you a promise. You're going to testify to the facts about Jesus in Rome. And immediately, Paul gets tested about whether or not he believes that promise. Next verse, a murder plot from 40 Jews to kill him. Next thing you know, he's shipped off and he's, he's, in, uh, he's in Caesarea and he's in jail there and in justice and he's left in jail for two years. But what about the promise? He's left in jail there for two years. I was thinking about this verse in Psalm 105. Let me read this to you. It's about Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph in Genesis? Psalm 105, it says, When he, that's God, verse verse 16, When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, that's what God did, famine in Egypt, he had sent a man ahead of them. So God brings down a famine on Egypt, but guess what? He had already sent a man ahead of them. Y'all know who that is, right? Joseph. Here's a question that comes to my mind. God, how'd you send him? How'd you send him there? And it says this, Joseph... Here's how he sent him. Who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. That's how you sent him? Paul, you're going to Rome. I'm taking you to Rome. You're going to go. That desire you had to build up the church, get the gospel to Spain, I'm taking you to Rome. You must testify before Caesar. How are you going to get me there, Lord? Murder plots. Jail. Two, two years, injustice, in jail. That's, what, that's how I'm going to... This is the path through the Roman uh, uh, judicial system. I'm going to get you there in that sort of way. Listen to the next verse in Psalm 105, verse 18. Verse 19. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Joseph got a dream. I'm going to make you a king. That's what I'm going to do. And until it came to pass, the word of God sat there and tested him. The promise tested him. And the same thing with Paul. Paul is given a promise in Acts 23, 11. You're going to Rome. Immediately he's tested. Is he going to believe? Is he going to believe this promise? Now later, in the midst of his testing, Acts 27, he's on that ship and he gets reassured of the promise. This is years later. In Acts 27, verse 24, And he said, the angel appears to him and says this, while that ship is tossed on the sea, and everybody's lost hope, everybody thinks they're about to die, and he receives this from the angel. Do not be afraid, Paul, 
You must stand before Caesar. Promise. Reassuring promise. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. Paul looks at the men. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God. In that promise, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. I have faith in God. It will be exactly as I have been told. And so now what we see in Acts 28 is it's beautiful to see it unfold. Now the promise is fulfilled. It's finally fulfilled. And I love how simply it says it. Just Maybe just because it's so easy for God to fulfill His promise. It just says in verse 14, And so we came to Rome. All this build up, all this build up that he's going to Rome, and then this is all we get. And, and so we came to Rome. And then verse 16, it's just so simply said, so casually said, and when we came into Rome, and there they are in Rome, promise fulfilled. Now this is what our God is like. He's a God that always fulfills his promise. He's a God that everything he speaks, he does. A God you can trust. A God you can put, you can rest in and put your trust in Him, depend on Him, rely on Him. You really can. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that He should lie. He's not a son of man that He should change His mind. Has He said it and we not do it? Has He spoken it and we not bring it to pass? He is a faithful God to His Word. He always fulfills His Word every single time. Not one word He has ever spoken has fallen to the ground. Not one. And how are we to respond to that? Well, we're to have this Acts 27, 25 faith, right? Take heart. Take courage. Take heart. I have faith in God. That should be our response to His faithfulness. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. God's faithful to His promise. It's the main thing you're taking away from here. And how must you respond? I have faith in God. It will be exactly as God has said in His Word. Exactly. Because our God is faithful. Now, how do we participate like that? What what do we have faith in? Do we have uh, situational promises like Paul had? You know, the promise to Paul is you're going to Rome. Do we ever get promises that say, you know, you're going to Montgomery, Alabama? I'm going to get you there. Do we get promises like that? And the answer is no. That's connected in to him being an apostle. and have, He's an eyewitness of Jesus, apostle of Jesus Christ. But what we have are Scripture promises. This is how we participate in the faithfulness of God. Scripture promises. And that is not a downgrade. 2 Peter 1.19 says we have something more sure than that word spoken from the mountain audibly. We have something more sure, the prophetic scripture. And we look to the scripture promises and we say, I have faith in God. It will be exactly as he has said because our God is faithful to his promise. He's a faithful God. Let me give you two quick examples, really quick examples, okay? You don't have a promise that you'll make it to Rome or a situational promise like Paul the Apostle here, but you got this promise just as an example. There's many to choose from. Here's an example. John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that, that whoever believes in Him, the Jesus who came and died, crucified for sinners, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Your promised destination is not Rome, it's eternity with Christ. 
How do you participate in his faithfulness? You hold to that promise. I believe that it will be exactly as my God has spoken. Let me give you another one. Matthew 24, 14. This fits with the, with the book of Acts here, the theme of the book of Acts. Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Promise. The word of God will go forward to every unreached people group on the planet. You say, what's that got to do with me? Acts 1.8 says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Okay, the gospel will go forward, but will people be converted? Revelation 5.9 gives you a glimpse into heaven, and when you look into heaven, what do you see? People from every nation, tribe, and tongue, every people group on the planet saying, worthy is the Lamb. How do you participate in that promise? How do you lay hold of that promise that the gospel is going to all nations, the word of the Lord will advance to all people groups, and there will be a remnant from every people group for the glory of Jesus. How do you participate in that? You say, I believe I have faith in God that it will be exactly as He has spoken in His Word and then you move in accordance with that. Move in accordance with that. So the main point after those, there's just two examples of grabbing promises. But the main point of Acts 28, 1-16 is God is faithful to His promise. He's faithful to His promise. Brothers and sisters in Christ, take up the Word of God because He's faithful to it. Now, there's two questions that correlate uh, with this main point. Two questions that go along with this main point, and, um, and I believe we have answers for these two questions in our passage that we're in today. Question number one is this. Does God's faithfulness negate tribulations in the lives of Christians? In other words, God's faithful... God is faithful. So then will Christians face tribulation? And trials? God's faithful, so, so that means tribulations disappear for us, right? D- does God's faithfulness negate tribulations? And the answer is that Christians will face tribulations, of course. In fact, I want you to take this, this little phrase home with you. God ordained tribulations. Uh, God has designed things for Christians. We have this faithful God, and yet there are God-ordained tribulations. I say tribulations, and I don't... You know, we've talked a lot about persecution. I don't just mean persecution. I mean, the, the storm hit and blew our ship somewhere. I mean, I show up on dry land and got bit by a snake. I mean, the car won't crank. That's what I mean. I mean, just, just trials and tribulations, just... That's what I mean. And then listen, God ordained trials and tribulations. In other words, yes, you will have tribulation. You have a faithful God, but you will have tribulation. And it's not because God's not able to get rid of them. It's because God ordains them for you. He plans them for you and me. Christians have a faithful God who is faithfully ordained for us to live a life with tribulations. 
Paul's going from Jerusalem to Rome. He's got a faithful God. He's got a promise and a destination because that's how the promise is going to be fulfilled. But between here and there, tribulation comes. And it's the same thing for me and you. It's the exact same thing. Now, I want to read this verse to you. This, this verse has always amazed me. Acts 14, 22. Listen to this. He, uh, he just planted churches in the Galatian region. He got these churches in different places. And he's preached the gospel, made disciples. Now he's going back to those churches to strengthen them. Paul, how are you going to strengthen them? What kind of stuff do you say, Paul, to strengthen the churches? And look at what it says in verse 22, 14, 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Okay, that's encouraging. I'm, I'm going to go strengthen those believers and those new churches. I'm going to strengthen them. What are you going to say to them, Paul? Keep going in the faith. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Think of how central this is that he put this before these new believers, these new churches. When he wants to encourage them in the very thing, we don't get much, we know he said a lot of things, but the, the little clip we get is, listen, new churches, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. This is central. It's a big deal. This through many tribulations. Now try to apply that. You know, we see that in Acts 28, verse 1 through 16. We see many tribulations. Try to apply that to, uh, for example, the promise a moment ago. Matthew 24, 14. That this gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And here we are. We take up that promise, and we line up our life with gospel preaching and reaching unreached people groups. We're going out there. We're going to do that. Lord, we got good desires. We got good desires. We want to go there to build up the church. We want to go there to advance the gospel. We've got good desires, Lord. Guess what's coming from here to there? Tribulation. As you live that out, tribulation. It's coming. Trials, trials are coming. Now, why? Why tribulation? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be wise? I've, I've been studying uh, in Exodus and the ten plagues. And, and you know, Goshen kept getting set apart, right? You know, there's frogs in Egypt, none in Goshen. There's darkness in Egypt. It's, they got light in Goshen with the, with the people of God. Now, that would be wise, right, Lord? Wouldn't that be wise? Just, you know, set us apart from the world by they got tribulations. We don't. Maybe they won't come over here, Right? And I hope you go, uh, no, because God is wise and you're not. So, so why? So let's, let's think about that question. Why tribulations then? Why has God ordained it to be this way? Paul, think about this. Paul receives a promise to get to Rome, and it's easy for God to fulfill that promise. He could disappear from the prison and reappear in Rome. God could do that. He did it with Philip, right? He just... Disappear, appear in Rome. That's what he could have done. He's got a promise, a faithful God. You're going to Rome. Next step, two years in prison in Caesarea. Why? Why, why two years in prison in Caesarea? Why is this the case? Okay, okay, finally, the prison time there is up. Now we're getting on a ship and we're headed to Rome. We're headed to Caesar, right? Why not smooth sailing? Why rough waters? Why trials and tribulations? Why not smooth sailing to Rome? Okay, finally. Okay, finally. The, the rough sailing's over. We get to the beach. I see the beach. We're about to land the boat. A reef. Seriously. Why? 
Why is the ship getting broken up when I can see the beach right there? And why has it got to happen in winter's cold? And I got to jump in this water. And seriously, did it just start raining? Okay, finally. I'm on the beach. I'm by the warm fire. Thank you, Lord, for these friendly natives. Snake bite. What? Why? Why, why these, why these tribulations? Why does it go on and on? Why is this the life of a faithful Christian following a faithful God in His promises? Why? What's the purpose? And I give you three answers. Very quick answers. The first one's gonna be very unsatisfying. Number one is I don't know. Now let me say it like this. In a sense, I don't know. We have some ideas, but I don't know every tribulation that you face, I face, Christians face. We don't always know. The question is, has it been settled in your mind and heart? This is the life you live. It's ordained by your Father who loves you. That you will face tribulation. Have you settled that in your heart? That it's just true. And if I never know the reason for this tribulation, I trust God. You must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God where you trust Him. Let me give you a second reason, maybe a little more satisfying. Um, this is how God accomplishes His priorities. Okay? Um, you've got priorities that can be thwarted. God has priorities that are different than yours. His ways are not your ways. Uh, his thoughts are not your thoughts. And His priorities never get thwarted. Paul's priority, drop the money off. First First ship to Rome, get to Rome, get to Spain, preach the gospel. God's got different priorities. God's doing a million other things that aren't even written, that we don't even understand. A million other things that he's doing as he frustrates Paul's purpose to get to Rome. Including, here's something that wasn't in Paul's plan, get the gospel to Malta. Those natives, preach the gospel there. You don't know what he's doing in the midst of the tribulation. I know you've got a plan. I know you got a plan, but your priorities aren't the same as his priorities. And he's doing things you can't even see. You don't even understand. A third reason for these tribulations in your life is your sanctification. God is very concerned, not just with getting you from A to B, but to sanctify the traveler, right? He's looking to sanctify you along the way. Romans 8, 28. Everybody knows it. Not many people know verse 29. Romans 8, 28 says... All things, listen to it, I know you've heard it from me before, don't let it, uh, don't let it, don't go numb to it. All things, all things, work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. That means every tribulation working for good, what do you mean? Verse 29 says, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. All things working together, every tribulation, to make you more like Jesus. So why trials and tribulations? Well, it's for your sanctification. I heard uh, John Piper speaking recently, and he said something I thought was helpful, that one of God's main tools of sanctification in your life is to frustrate your efficiency. Or, you say it like this, to frustrate your priorities. Because it humbles you. Uh, it makes you lean against God. makes you call out to Him. All right, second question, and we'll finish with this question. How can a Christian imitate Paul's faith until their final breath? 
Now, I know in your study guide, I'll put Acts 27, 25. That's what I mean. How, how, we see Paul's faith, okay? He's in the midst of it, midst of trial, midst of tribulation. He says, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as he has spoken. That's what I mean. How can we imitate that faith until the very end, until the day we take our last breath? That ought to be important to you. I just I was just teaching in one of the fellowship groups this week about King Asa, who began as a man that relied upon God, but he didn't finish well. That ought to warn you. He began as a man that relied on God. He says, God, we rely upon you. In your name we go against this great multitude. Years later, he relied on men. He relied on flesh. He relied on his own strength, but he did not rely on God. He didn't finish well. How can we imitate this faith of Paul and finish well to the very end? So I'm telling you about God's faithful to His promises, so you'll take up those promises and believe them. I'm telling you about uh, uh, tribulations on the way, so that you won't have fair weather faith, as we heard about last week. You have real faith that endures to the end. So how do you continue in that faith? Here's the answer. God uses means to do that. God is going to keep those who are His to the end. But listen to me. God uses means. Now let me give you an example. God's Word, the Word of God, the promises of God, and reminders of these promises are means to cause us to make it in our faith to the very end. Okay? Think about the promises in uh, Acts 23.11. We read that one, right? When Jesus comes to Paul and gives him that promise, He says these words, Take courage. Take courage. That's be, be filled with faith. Take, take courage. Be, rely on me. Be filled with faith on me. Take courage because just like you testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you're going to Rome to do the same. Take courage. That's what the promises do. They, they, they are a means of God to inject faith into you. Okay? Now, a little bit later, when he gets reminded, remember in Acts 27, he's on the boat, he gets reminded of the promise. What does Paul say? Take heart. You must testify in front of Caesar. So, so take heart. Be encouraged. Be filled with faith in my promise. The Word of God is a means to cause us to make it to the end and be filled with faith. But here's the means that's this, this, uh, shown to us in Acts 28, verse 1 through 16. Remember when Paul sees those brothers coming from Rome? Remember what he did? Acts 20, uh, 28 here. He sees them coming and it says, He thanked God. And he took courage. Just like that promise, reminders of the promises of God's Word is a means. In the same way, the body of Christ is a means. He saw them, and he thanked God, and he took courage. Isn't that beautiful? He sees those brothers coming. They embrace. They speak. And his heart's filled with faith. He takes courage. He takes courage. So I'm talking about this means. So how, do you, how are you going to make it to the end in your faith, this Acts 27, 25 faith, how are you going to make it to the end? Well, one means God is going to use, and He will use, is the body of Christ. Do you understand the importance of the body of Christ? Ask yourself that question. Do you understand the importance of the body of Christ? The book of Acts, all the way through, has been telling us about this. Acts 1, these people gathered together in unity and prayer, preaching the glorious gospel. Acts 2, people get saved in Jerusalem. They devote themselves to the Word of God. They devote themselves to prayer together. They devote themselves to one another. 
We read about the togetherness of these people. That they're sharing things. Nobody, nobody is needed because they're just distributed among all as any has need. These people love each other. These people care for each other. And they're helping each other make it to the end. The church, the body of Christ, is a means to cause you to have faith. Acts 27, 25, faith to the very, to the very end. I want to read this passage to you. It's a little bit longer passage, so please try to lean in here. Ephesians 4. Listen to this. Do you understand the importance of the body of Christ? Ephesians 4, verse 11. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. There they are. We understand pastors, teachers, shepherds, teachers. This is talking about in the context of a, the body of Christ. It's where shepherd teachers uh, minister and serve. Shepherd teachers. Okay, so we're thinking about the church here. And then it says, to equip the saints... So, shepherd teachers, pastor teachers, equipping saints. We're talking about the church here. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until, get your sights here, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, the importance of the body of Christ, y'all, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, look at the church here, speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint in which, with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see the importance of the body of Christ. You feel that in your soul. You feel that in your bones. The, the importance of the body of Christ. And so we see it in Paul's life. Uh, in our passage we see that. I, th- I think a lot of times we read Acts and we think about the importance of the Apostle Paul for the church. But not enough do we think about the importance of the church for the Apostle Paul. Think about what's happened here. He's on a ship to go be trod in Rome, and two brothers sacrifice and lay it all down. They sacrifice it all and go with him. Two brothers go with him. We read that in Acts 27. And then it says here in verse 14, there we found brothers that invited us in. 28, 14. There we found brothers in Pudio. They found brothers. Stayed with them for a week. Verse 15, and the brothers there, when they heard about us in Rome, they came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. They came to meet him just to turn around and walk with him. And listen to the phrase again, I love it. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Do you know the importance of the body of Christ? Do you think Paul was weary? Was he weary? And here comes the church, here comes the body, and they take, he takes courage just at the sight of these brothers? The body of Christ is a means. Now it says he thanked God, right there in verse 15. He thanked God because he knows that this body of Christ, this unity in the Spirit, is a gift from God. It's from Him. It's something that's from God. So he, so he begins to thank God. Do you, have, do you have this kind of perspective? Oh, thank you God for the body of Christ. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for the church, Lord. You know, listen, that is a sign of true salvation. 
That's a sign of true conversion. 1 John 3, 14. By this we know we pass from death and into life, that we love the brethren. Do you have this perspective? Or have you taken it for granted? Think about Paul seeing them. and Saying, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you for these brothers that are here to encourage me and to build me up and to help me. Thank you for the work of the church in my life. Do you have that perspective? That When's the last time you thank God for the church, for the body of Christ, for your brothers and sisters in Christ? And then it says he took courage. Verse 15, he took courage. Imagine there, maybe growing weary, but, but he sees those brothers. He says he takes courage. This means, this is a means of God, body of Christ, a means of God to help you finish the race of faith. Uh, so that's what the body of Christ is a means given, just like the Word of God and prayer means for you that you need to engage in. The body of Christ is a means for God to help you finish the race of faith to the end. It says He took courage. He took courage. So, brothers and sisters, are you laying hold of this means? Or you don't need that? You're good to go. I don't, I don't, I don't need the body of Christ. I'm good on my own. Is, is that you and your pride? Or are you laying hold of this means that God has put brothers and sisters in your life? Do you have relationships of exhorting one another in the faith, encouraging each other, holding each other up, rebuking one another if necessary? Do you have those kind of relationships? Are you laying hold of this means? Or have you taken it for granted? And I want to encourage everyone here to lay hold of this means. And I want to encourage you that in closing with Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What a warning. Watch out. Watch out. Lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart and you walk away from God. Watch out for that. Have you given me any means to keep me from that, Lord? Verse 13. But exhort one another. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you have this? Are you laying hold of this means in your life? Take care, brothers. Take care, sisters, lest you have an evil, unbelieving heart and walk away from God. But listen, be a part of this. Exhort one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ with this exhorting heart to love each other and care for each other. Lay hold of that means in your life. You might be faithful to the end. Let me end with a summary statement. Acts 28, verse 1 through 16. God's faithful to His promises. Amen? Faithful to His promises. Tribulation will certainly come. And let us help each other make it to the very end. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, the, for your word and for your faithfulness, God. Lord, we lift you up as a faithful God. Lord, you, you have promised that you keep your word, that not one, one of your words will ever fall to the ground and not come to pass. You've promised us that, Lord, and we believe you. We've seen it, God. We've seen you be so faithful to your promises. You are our immutable, unchangeable, glorious God, and we worship you. God, make us a people filled with faith. 
Make us a people that cling to your word, full of faith in the promises. God, I pray that you would protect us from a fair weather faith. Thank you, God, for suffering. Thank you, Lord, for tribulations and trials. God, you know best. You are so wise. God, help us to endure hardship as good soldiers. And Lord, I pray that you would take every every brother or sister in Christ here and you would give every single one of us, Lord, these relationships in the body of Christ, Lord, that encourage them, that exhort them. Give that to all of us. Grant it to us. We see it as a gift from you. Thank you so much, God. You have. We've seen you do this in so many ways. You've given me, Lord, my brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, and it's been such an encouragement to my soul. And I know so many of us can say that to you, Lord. We worship you. Thank you, God, for the church. Lord, help us not to lose that. Help us, Lord, please. In Jesus' name, amen.